Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We have a stellar lineup for our Christmas week show this week, and I'm very delighted to have back some some uh, guests that have been on the show previously, um, and uh, and a new a new guest as well, um, joining us uh, as uh, and helping us out as a, a sponsor today is the team from Railsbank, CEO and co-founder of Railsbank, Nigel Verdon. Verdon, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Brett. It's uh, good to be back again. Yeah, you know, we've had you on the show for many years since the days of Currency Cloud and, and before that, you know, you're sort of a fixture in the fintech space, man. No, it's, it's been since 1996, when the first company I founded then. But uh, no, it's... Uh, it's uh, you must it's enjoy it. You must oh, yes, enjoy of course, it. yes. <laughs> a bit of uh, a bit older, I said, really not into fintech anymore. No, no, <laughs> great industry, great industry. Absolutely. Uh, joining us also from FT Partners is the uh, founder, managing partner at uh, FT Partners, Steve McLaughlin. Steve, welcome back. Great to be here, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you on. You've been pretty busy, man. You just, uh, I, you guys just closed a, a raise for one of your uh, your portfolio companies, right? Mambu, you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, Mambu, uh, yeah, two to $300 million round. Uh, yeah, we got to know them about a year ago. They raised a, a $200 million plus round in January at, uh, you know, $1.6 billion. Now it's up to four point seven, and less than a year later. So that, That'll go to show you what's going on in fintech. That, that, that counts as uh, positive growth in, in my book. <laughs> and also joining us is Amit Sewell. He is uh, from Sezzle. Um, Amit, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Lovely being here. And Sezzle is a buy now, pay later platform. And um, when, when was Sezzle founded? We were founded five years ago. So, I mean, we are big in the US and obviously we are slowly expanding into other markets. And I'm looking after product and tech uh, for our European expansion. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show. So, guys, this has been a huge year in fintech. I mean, Q1 was a record funding quarter with $28 billion. Um, Q2 then beat that out at $31 billion. And then Q3 was $35 billion, so, um, which represented almost the entire you know, funding of 2020. So, um, you know, why why all of a sudden is fintech just hit its stride? Maybe Steve, you want to start off with sort of some perspective from from the VC market in terms of why fintech's so hot at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Brett, and and thanks for having us on here again. But yeah, I think what's going on is people are starting to see which companies are the winners, and they're really throwing a lot of money behind those big winners, right? And so a lot of this is driven by some really big rounds. If you look at the number of 500 million dollar plus rounds which you really didn't see ever three or four years ago except in a really really rare occasion there were seven of them uh, in the first three quarters of last year 25 500 million dollar plus rounds 
um, this year. Um, you know, a couple we were involved in, you know, Revolut, billion dollars of our own money, $600 million. Um, there's this, and there's more. But um, so just a huge amount of big financings. And then, you know, that's just the mega ones. You got, you know, deals between 100 and 500 million, 69 last year, 271. So just the round sizes are getting bigger because the number of winners are appearing. And it's, I think there's a bit of a fear for, you know, is it winner takes all? Is it winner takes most? And people are really pouring on the, the juice. I think people are also seeing that there's a big global opportunity in fintech. So yeah. companies like Revolut, if you're going to be a trillion dollar company, you got to expand around the world. You're going to need a lot of money to do that. You're going to need regulatory capital. So people are stocking up. Um, you're also seeing a lot of activity in the emerging markets. You know, 10 years ago, we weren't doing anything in Brazil or Africa you know, these days, uh, every other deal we do is in an emerging market, um, you know, and, and literally right now, um, we've got a lot of stuff going on in Africa, India, Southeast Asia, LATAM. It's uh, in addition to a massive amount of stuff everywhere else. So just, uh, you know, I think pattern recognition is being, um, you know, solidified. So people know earlier on what creates a great company and they're jumping in and backing these companies. And to some extent, you know, and, and I'll, I'll stop in a second here, the capital is becoming strategic, right? It's not just funding. So if you've got the capital, you can do all sorts of things in advance that, you know, you wouldn't have normally done if you could have just raised capital trying to protect your dilution. So, you know, there's people that are building you know, 10 products at a time as opposed to one at a time. So it's really interesting to see. I, but I do think we've got over some sort of key arguments. Like before uh, the pandemic, there was still this debate about, well, when fintechs face a real crisis, you know, um, you know, we'll see what they're made of and so forth. And, you know, here we are, you know, this month looking, you know, at Nubank's uh, IPO potentially in the US, um, which would, uh, you know, we, we're looking at potentially 50 billion valuation there, which would make it the largest bank in Brazil. Um, not to mention the fact that Itaú, you know, has a valuation at like what is it, thirty-nine billion or something, the number one bank there, um, and uh, you know they got, I think they're at forty-eight million customers now for Nubank, compared with say fifty-five million for Itaú, who's been there for decades. The growth, the the scaling of fintech, Nigel. Um, you know, I mean, you've been in a number of fintechs, but this sort of rapid scaling. Um, and the, the ability to acquire customers at scale is becoming a really critical differentiation from the, the fintechs to the incumbents. You know, how you see that shaping the market, just the ability to acquire customers at scale? No, it's, it's, it's a good question. The, uh, the COVID has been just sort of a, a blessing in disguise, if you can call it that because uh, it's shown the real power of the uh, the digital haves and the digital have-nots. So uh, there's been an observation in the financial services industry uh, over the years, uh, so I've been uh, working it, there's been billions of dollars spent on, on digital transformation, but uh, it didn't really get anywhere. Uh, it's uh, taken a loan process and created a PDF out of it, which isn't really creating a digital business. And same sort of thing when you see people who have a chief digital officer in the company, you don't see a chief digital officer in Facebook or Google or any of the big tech companies in Apple. So the the the, the realisation over COVID that uh, the digital companies have won 
uh, are winning. And uh, so uh, fintech is a digital business and uh, is able to sign up customers and get massive growth over these past two years, primarily because you can and you can service customers in a, in a non-traditional uh, branch or in a more, a more quicker way that you don't need people actually in the office. So a, a classic example is in, we're talking about emerging markets in Indonesia. Uh, the, uh, the regulations were changed because uh, the population wasn't being able to access finance because there's very much reliance still on going to the branch or to applications had to be done in branch and paper and wet signature. And that forced regulation change. So regulation change has, uh, has taken off uh, the uh, uh, digital banks in Indonesia, Philippines, for example, and this uh, and digital native business, real digital native businesses have been able to acquire customers much faster because if you're sitting at home, you can't go and fill in the loan form or put the wet signature on the capability and uh, the digital businesses have. So that's a primary reason for it. Then the driving of consumer behavior is a much higher acceptance now uh, in, in because the maturity of the, the fintech market when I think back when you and I first met in, in, uh, in Maribel, back in the sort of 2012 or 13 or so, it was uh, a nice experiment, I think, uh, fintech right, was right. viewed. Uh, I think breaking banks was just sort of coming out. Yeah, the we doors. started in 2013. You're right, and it and it's. Uh, but now it, it's uh, modus operandi. Uh, the this is a, a business. It's a sector. Uh, customers uh, are going towards it because of the the services are, are fundamentally better and easier, and appeal to people. I think it, from uh, from Steve's uh, perspective, you can see the money that's been raised into it. That shows uh, the the sort of 15, 20-year view of investors rather than the short-term one or two-year is this is here to stay. And there's a recent McKinsey report that came across uh, my, my desk the other day, which uh, was massively supportive of this is an industry, say, because they've cracked digital. They really have done. Same with the music industry, like Spotify and others right. really cracked, uh, and iTunes cracked the digital industry there. But just five years ago, if you had said that the largest banks in their respective markets, you know, in the near-term future are going to be fintechs, um, that would have been uh, greeted with total derision, with the exception of maybe Ant Group, you know, who uh, <laughs> prior to their aborted IPO, um, you know, was going to be what the third or fourth largest uh, FI in the world by market cap. But let's look at, you, you've got N26, you've got, um, you know, Steve, you mentioned Revolut, um, you've got Nubank. These guys are now playing in a, you know, fairly rarefied space in respect to valuation and number of customers that put them as leading players in their respective markets. So, um, you know, how long is it before we start looking at the, the makeup of the financial services industry and see a split, you know, 50-50 between, um, you know, new players and incumbents um, from a market share perspective? Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know about the 50-50 part, but I do think you're going to continue to seeing it because the, the large banks and, and particularly the small banks even, maybe worse, um, you know, are just not equipped to handle the pace of innovation and change that consumers need. You know, consumers are looking for all sorts of data and analytics around how to run their lives. They're looking for speed, connectivity, 
um, open banking initiatives. They're looking for, you know, what Nigel's is, is, you know, basically generating around the world, which is embedded finance, you know, and all that stuff doesn't work if you hook to legacy systems, legacy banks. And, and um, you know, so I think you're going to continue to see folks like Revolut, Chime and others, you know, continue to innovate. I think the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, you, you call these things, you know, you may have to change the thing from breaking banks to breaking super apps or something. I mean, it's right. uh, because they're, they're, it's not hard once you have a consumer using your app, if you will, or your credit card um, or your debit, you know, on your, on your app to, you know, add other products, whether it's online trading or crypto um, or money transfer or what have you. So I think it's these, the utility of these platforms to consumers becoming greater and greater. And the more data that they get on you is you think it's maybe a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. They can, you know, give you an instant loan. You can be already approved at all times for a mortgage or a personal loan or a buy now, pay later uh, type of instrument like Cezzle, um, who's killing it, by the way. So congrats on uh, Cezzle's uh, rocket ship growth. Um, but, um, you know, so I think uh, it, the trend is going to continue happening. And look, you don't want to be fooled by the market cap of these banks. I mean, the market cap shows the, the future potential you know, of them. These are not book value valuations. They're, you know, if this company succeeds over 20 years, it's worth $50 billion today. But guess what? If it, if it succeeds over 20 years, it's going to be worth, you know, a trillion dollars in 10 years. So that's the thing that's interesting. And I think uh, being a global bank um, or a global super app, you know, you are going to see trillion dollar companies like uh, in the next 10 to 20 years for sure. Absolutely. No, I think that that's that's the clear trajectory. Um, so you know, let's let's talk about um, user behavior and how that shifted during the pandemic. Amit, um, you know, uh, obviously when it comes to the buy now pay later stuff that you guys are working on, um, this has sort of come out of nowhere for many people in respect to this space. You know, we have obviously some of your uh, contemporaries in the space, uh, you know, raised some big money and doing very well also. But, um, you know, why, why is buy now, pay later working now? And, um, you know, uh, where, where do you see this impacting sort of the credit card market and things like this in terms of this push to contextual credit access? Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's working now. I just think that we are basically, you know, it's getting more media attention now, but it, it grew, it started growing a lot, uh, you know, back in the early days of Cesar, right? So we saw a very hyper growth. Uh, we are quite big in the US. I think the, obviously COVID helped fuel overall payments in general, right? And 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 Binapilada is, uh, the way we see it is, you know, it's an essential part of a payment transaction. So a lot of payments are going to be paid uh, upfront and there's a lot of payments are going to be paid in credit. And Binovator is just basically saying, well, you don't need a credit card separately. We're just going to give you a credit card when you need it. And, and it'll be at your convenience. It's how you will use it. Uh, so the way we see it is, is that it's just one more way of reducing friction in enabling commerce. And that sort of goes back to your point, which is why is FinTech so valuable? I think the reason why fintech is so valued right now is is the future potential that we are taking friction out from some old you know the foundation of economy which is payments uh and and we don't stop there right payment method is just one aspect of it so you know with with existing incumbent rails you have 3ds that's coming in so there's a lot of friction that will come in because of new uh new aspects and our our you know credit is obviously one feature that we offer but we we really have to 
focus on building a frictionless commerce for for our for our customers who are merchants, right? Uh, so I think it's it's sort of COVID obviously helped, uh, but it was it was just due, you know, like credit cards just never really scale because they're built on the old model of you know uh, credit cores and there are a lot of other aspects that really hold credit card growth. A lot of people still don't get this model. Like they still think like, you know, pineapple is a negative product. We don't see it this way. We just see that, you know, it's just credit card done. Just better. a natural evolution. Yeah. It's so it's done so much better. It well, basically gives access to credit to people who normally would be, uh, you know, not given access to credit by, by the, by the industry. Right. So we just, it's like we're democratizing uh, credit uh, and, and we, we don't believe, uh, you know, so there's a lot of growth to come and it's just, it's just a start. Nigel, um, you know, we are seeing more focus being put on, you know, various pieces of utility of banking. So in this, in Ahmed's example, it's access to credit. It's not, you know, Ahmed's sort of trying to frame it as an instant credit card, but it's really just utility of credit that's available in real time. We've seen more focus on financial wellness and savings, behavioral savings, like you've got Yui Bao on on the Alipay stack and, you know, we've had the digits and acorns and, and, you know, even you could put, I guess, Robin Hood in in that respect to some extent. Um, But, uh, you know, this this contextualization of banking experiences, you know, uh, if you play this out, isn't it just like going to destroy traditional bank products like a credit card if credit access now becomes embedded in your world if you walk into a car dealership and you've got access to credit for for buying a car if you you walk into a grocery store and you don't have enough cash to buy your groceries but you get instant credit access isn't that by nature going to destroy traditional products like credit cards and overdraft and car loans and things like that for more these contextual experiences sure it's uh You've got a contextual experience sort of relevant. If uh, if you look at uh, the world uh, that, that we, we sit in, which is we call the embedded finance experience world, uh, consumers in general, and consumers pretty much drive everything, uh, want experiences. And I think uh, one of the first ones I, I sort of remember when something became an experience was when I got my first iPhone, the box was amazing. And there's a whole experience, and there's a whole like YouTube channels all over the place about unboxing, yeah, unboxing videos, yeah, things. It's become but a real that, thing, and that's uh, that's an experience. And and buying a car, uh, consumers uh, or people don't go out and say, "I'm going to go buy a car loan today." They go, out, "I want to buy a car because I need the car experience, either for utility or for fun or whatever the the buying criteria is." But it's an experience, and so. Why not put finance as a product placement at the point of the consumer experience and let them consume it there, whether it's credit or, or it could be a wallet type infrastructure or anything. So it, we see uh, the, the future is not so much just breaking the products down, it's actually breaking down the need to go to uh, the financial institution. Because traditionally, financial institutions have required the consumer to go to them as opposed to wrapping the product at the point where it's where it's actually useful to the consumer and relevant to the consumer what they're doing at that moment in time what experience they're going through and so the the, the white goods buying experience i'm going to need to go and buy a, or, or, or a television buying experience buy and i pay later sitting in that experience consumers don't go and buy go for buy and i pay later they go to buy a television 
uh, they, the payroll comes in a couple of weeks. They feel they can take the credit on that and are able to buy the, the product at that moment in time because the credit is there uh, with embedded almost into the television experience. So, yes, I think it's going to reconstruct, the, the I think, the whole finance industry, not just the products, but uh, where and who uh, interacts with, uh, the, with the consumer. And we have a, a saying within, within Rails Bank that we think the future of finance is not going to be bank-led, it's going to be very much brand-led where brand could be Volkswagen, Mercedes. And there's some in, super interesting work of um, Mercedes, where it's a, it's a pay by car, which is you know, petrol is paid for by the car. And so this whole sort of embedding everything into the, into the, 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 the brand that has a direct contact and a contextual relevance uh, to what the consumer is doing at the moment in time will restructure the finance industry. I think you know if you if you look at the like what consumers want, you, you're right. It's it's like I want this problem solved. I don't necessarily want to buy a, a credit card. Um, you know, like I I want the utility that the credit gives me in terms of another purchase. But what do you think? Um, you know, maybe Steve, you might have a thought on this as well. But um, uh, you know, I'll direct this to to the group. Um, you know, what what do you think the effect of COVID? from an economics perspective, longer term, obviously it's hit people pretty hard. You know, over the last couple of years, um, you know, people have had their finances affected. Uh, you know, yes, we had stimulus uh, payments and so forth. But um, you know, when we look at other pandemics like this in history gone by, you know, um, it does produce austerity. People are more focused on savings. Um, and you know, if you think about Gen Gen Zs and the Gen, Gen um, Ys in, in this respect, this is the first major crisis that they've had to face like this. So coming out of this, do you think that those levers we had in the past, you know, for the credit card, like the credit card reward programs, the cashback and the airline miles, do you think that's going to get less or that's going to be less of a motivator for people to take a credit card and, um, you know, going to be looking at more holistic management of their money where credit sort of fits into that uh, overall? What What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, having more and more data, you know, available to you. And if you can look at your life on a holistic basis, um, you can have a much better retirement someday. If you if you're getting all the best products uh, because all the information is available and you're able to save money every year and deploy that money into savings and investing. And, you know, if you want crypto, um, you know, I think people are looking for. And maybe too optimistically at this point for a better financial future, right? That fintech is going to somehow, you know, make everybody wealthier, and you know, so you don't have to work hard anymore. So, you know, I think uh, you know the idea about um, millennials feeling like you can you can just sort of you know figure out how to get into crypto for a period of time or ride some kind of a trend and, and not and not you know work your ass off, uh, you know, to make money is uh, it's a whole other topic, I guess. But but no, look the. I think the the world's changed. The future of work is upon us. People are working from from home. People are working from the middle of nowhere. Um, companies that we're talking to are hiring people. Uh, there's no offices anymore. So the world's changed a lot. So it's pushing people online. It's pushing people more to not want to deal with banks and do more things like what Nigel's powering, which is embedded finance. So um, yeah, the world's it's changed a lot. Absolutely, Nigel. You think yes. from from a behavioural perspective that um, this is sort of shifting us away from, 
you know, more of a more of a focus on holistic financial wellness. Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, again with the data that uh, came back from Steve saying that uh, even people at Amazon have on me uh, been able to uh, uh, interact with Amazon for your banking or interact with Amazon for your lending or your credit. At the point where, because I've seen your history, they they've got a very good uh, idea of what and um, predictive analysis and predictive tools, and what you might behave like. So their their curves are probably tighter than traditional credit scoring, for example, in in the credit world. But the uh, in terms of financial wellness, uh, bringing everything together, so you haven't got little pots all over the place, and giving you almost a the, your holistic score, something like uh, Revolut can uh, potentially do, uh, allows you to see and run scenarios in the future based on past behaviour, coming back to data, to say, can I do something? Can I run scenarios? And no general bank for the general population outside of uh, private banking has ever been able to run those scenarios for you. So I see the, the your financial wellness can become better because you can use the tools to see the future, uh, to run scenarios, to see, can I do this, can I not? What happens if I have children uh, run out those scenarios? And that can only be a good thing because it's almost like embedded a financial education just to create a new industry uh, into, into your life because a lot of your life, if you've given permission to see the Or data, like a financial coach, right, that... Yeah, sort oh, of exactly. Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah, exactly. uh, it helps you in the future because a lot of people, uh, especially I remember when I first got my first credit card, I cut it up after two years because I kept having to pay the thing back, and I left uh, lived off my current account then. Uh, but if you educated me at that time, uh, and I'm a reasonably educated person of of how to use credit effectively, that's a great thing. That's that's to do with wellness and removing stress as well. Excellent. Well, listen, let's take a break, guys. After the break, I want to talk about what's going to happen in 2022. Um, and let's get a little bit future gazing. Let's talk about the metaverse, uh, the emergence of smart glasses next year, and how these things are going to change the contextual nature of finance and embedded finance in this real-time digital world that we're merging into. You're listening to Breaking Banks. Uh, I've, I've got with me Steve McLaughlin, FT Partners, Ahmet Sewell from Sezzle, and Nigel Verdon from Rails. We will be back after this break. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, frictionless, and secure. This is our financial future. Technology is advancing at a blistering pace and it's causing clients to ask for more from institutions in the capital markets. In this season, we discuss changing stakeholder demands, ESG, banking and payments as a service in the cloud, and how technology innovations such as AI, machine learning, robotic process automation and more might hold the answer. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? This show is sponsored by FIS. Find financial futures on your favorite podcasting app. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty 
have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. And you're back with Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. Joining me on the show today are two veterans of the uh, the fintech industry, Steve McLaughlin, uh, managing partner of FT Partners, and Nigel Vernon, the founder of Rails Bank. Um, welcome back, guys. Um, uh, maybe, Steve, let's start with you. Uh, it's been a huge year for fintech across the world. How do you think this, uh, you know, what are your expectations for 2022? Um, you know, do, does it continue the party? Are we going to see some of the uh, the heat come out of the uh, the funding side? Are we going to, you know, is there going to be a bit of a pause? What, what's your gut feel as, uh, as someone in the space? Yeah, thanks, Brett. You know, I think um, it's interesting. Everyone always asks me if, if, uh, if I think we're in a bubble and, you know, I think there's been many, many bubbles, you know, in the last five or 10 years, you know, there was a bubble around consumer lending with Lending Club and it popped, right? And then there was a bubble with crypto for a while and it popped. And then there was a bubble with, you know, insure tech consumer companies and which kind of popped and, you know, and, and now the whole market kind of took a little bit of a, a dive recently. So I think there's a lot of question, you know, is, you know, where are we in the market where things are overheated, is fintech overheated? And, and, as we've been saying, and, and we completely agree with uh, Nigel and McKinsey report and all of our reports, is that you know over the next twenty plus years, you know the the change and the winds of change of fintech are going to stay here. So I think the market's going to figure that out. Yeah, the the public market's going to punish companies that aren't performing. If you go out, you promise X, Y, and Z, you don't hit it, you're 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 going to get smacked, and you're seeing that by you know the public market with a lot of companies. There's also a lot of profit taking. You see a lot of insiders selling out. Um, you're seeing a lot of people at the end of the year just want to take the profits and, and rethink things for next year. So you could see a little bit of a lull, but I think we're going to come out of the gates like a bull um, in 2022. Are we going to hit you know $40 billion quarters? Um, you know, who knows? And, and who cares, right? At the end of the day, 30, 40, um, it's all good. Exactly. And um, But I, I think you're going to start seeing some billion-dollar rounds, uh, more billion-dollar rounds um, throughout the course of the year. So um, but look, it's hard to predict the future in a short-term basis, but long-term fintech's here to stay. We're growing. We're hiring people left and right and center all around the world in every group we have um, right into a little bit of a dip in the market with, with um, pretty much zero fear But because um, we're long-term focused. 
I mean, if you do look at this long term, the financial services sector, what it's, you know, $70 trillion a year or $66 trillion a year or whatever, total market size. I don't know the numbers, but um, yeah, there's still, you know, fintech is still, obviously it's taking market share, uh, but there's still plenty of room for growth. Um, if I was um, a midsize or a smaller bank right now, I think I'd be terrified, particularly in the US and European markets uh, in terms of that impact. Um, Nigel, obviously you guys are you know, becoming a foundational element for supporting a number of fintechs. We heard from Ahmed earlier, um, you know, who, who you've supported the CESL team. Um, but, uh, you know, how is... How is that environment in terms of people coming to, um, you know, Rails Bank changed, and where do you see that happening in 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 twenty twenty two? You know, how's how's your growth being powered by other fintechs wanting to come on top of Rail Bank's architecture? Sure, uh, we uh, fintechs are probably at the moment about eighty percent of our business, and uh, but what we've noticed uh, the trend in the last uh, two quarters has been non-fintech firms, but uh, more traditional businesses who have seen that, uh, uh, well, using to, to your words earlier on, contextual finance for an engagement tool or for a monetization tool or for, again, product placement. Uh, so we're seeing, uh, we think 2022 is going to be quite an interesting year uh, for uh, the sports world. And you can see already the NFTs that have been uh, going on in the news yesterday in the UK, uh, with Manchester City and Barker, for example, uh, engaging with their fan bases because uh, there's a massive loyalty. And when we looked at consumers and done some research around this, uh, there are, loyalty is, is a huge thing and uh, uh, sort of tribal behaviour. And ergo... Would you work with Manchester United if you had a Man United, uh, say, card, for example, uh, and use that because it allowed you to get things that you feel passionate about, which is like tickets to or, or travel uh, rewards for go, go to, to away games. Uh, though we're seeing a trend on that across the sports world of how to further engage and motivate the current fan base that go to the stadium and outside merchandising, and then the ones that you don't reach the merchandising or stadium. Uh, it's only television rights you, you get paid on, on those ones, but if you can reach those directly. So we're seeing a, a the utility of embedded finance uh, or embedded finance experiences, as we call it, uh, being applied outside of fintech. And uh, I think the Andreessen Horowitz had that anybody can be a fintech uh, type of uh, uh, stance a little while back, and I think they still do. But we, we, we don't see it that anybody can be a fintech. I think anybody can be great at engaging their consumers. Uh, there just happens to be some uh, finance involved in that. Then back to our, our friend data. Uh, this gives them amazing data. You mean Lieutenant Commander data from Starbucks? Exactly, yes. <laughs> okay, yes. And, uh, and the uh, being able to financial data is a bit of a goldmine to understand people's behaviors. You can see which merchants they shop at, for example, so that gives you a lot of contextual thing. And if you've got combined that with mobile data, you can see what people shop at and also where they happen to be. And there's some super interesting work being done 
Uh, and I think PwC have a, a great database, which is sort of like, I think it's Cambridge Analytica, but it's legitimate uh, and, and compliant and everything that uh, can help you say, where's the best place uh, to put the concession stand for the higher earners in a stadium? So the data from all this is, is uh, also going to help drive the engagement, the right placement, uh, the, the servicing, engagement with the consumers and fan bases. So uh, we see uh, this trend in 2022, it's moving outside of the fintech industry, the, the core fintech industry, to use finance and financial product and financial transactions, financial data, combining it with loyalty uh, to engage with uh, engage with people. The data question is an interesting one. Um, you know, if you're watching the Chinese market, obviously there's been a lot of disruption there. Steve, I know you keep an eye on this as well. But you know, Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay really changed the data mix there because they suddenly captured all of this payments data and sort of um, they cut out the the banks from access to that data and that was um you know a big reason for reform of uh the the regs and access uh, to that data in the chinese market but you know um maybe let's talk about the sort of apps versus traditional um, bank account debit card type infrastructure we're seeing. Obviously, Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay, they did $52 trillion of total mobile payments volume uh, in 2020. Um, US Plastic you know, did seven trillion in comparison. Global card market did thirty-five trillion in comparison, almost half of what the Chinese mobile wallets did. US did what three hundred billion, I think, in um, in mobile payments in twenty twenty. It's fairly, it's not growing anywhere near what's happening in in China. But China is just one example. We've got these super apps like Gojek in Indonesia. You mentioned in the Indonesian market earlier, Nigel. Um, you know, in Pesa and Africa, obviously the mobile. Market Money apps are, are starting to dominate there. They could be a large factor in moving people off cash. They're not likely to go to card. They're likely to use uh, mobile money and, and wallets there. Um, Indonesia with Gojek, um, Kakao has been very successful in South Korea. So outside of the US and outside of continental Europe, you see these explosion of these super apps and mobile apps that are, are dealing with day-to-day -day discretionary spending. You know, what does that mean in respect to the way we think about bank accounts or um, you know, value stores moving forward over the next few years? And, and is that sort of really going to reshape um, you know, the, the, the basic bank account architecture that we have globally? What do, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, it's funny. I, I I've been pretty shocked at the slowness with which you know certain players have you know achieved success in the wallet space, right? And um, you know, if you look at some of the big failures of the a bunch of retailers trying to put together you know wallets or or uh, Google trying right. to do wallet, uh, you know, it really hasn't happened. And you know, Apple Pay isn't yeah, really. Remember ISIS. I was going to say ISIS, but uh, you know, <laughs> great, great naming uh, convention for that one. You know, people at Target and Walmart sitting around the dream that one yeah, up. Exactly. But um, you know, um, so so it's been pretty uninspiring to be honest with you. And and if you look at what the, a lot of digital banks are doing, they're they're kind of single or double, you know, product, you know, companies in the U.S. Right? You know, Chime love the guys at Chime, but you know, they've they've exploded so much under the debit card program. 
you know, and it's, it's, uh, but there's a huge potential for them to get into other things and become a wallet. But I don't think anyone really thinks of Chime as a wallet. Um, PayPal has exploded internationally, but in the US, I don't really know anyone that uses PayPal as a, a consistent wallet to purchase things online, you know, maybe once in a while. Um, you know, but there's some really new, interesting technologies. Um, and uh, I'll highlight a company called Bolt, um, which uh, is looking to sort of win the one-click checkout war as, a, as, a, as effectively a wallet. You know, everyone absolutely adores and loves Amazon to be able to go on there, click on something, and basically have it show up at your house um, and not have to deal with, you know, entering all your credit card information in. But you really can't do that anywhere else on the web on a consistent basis. Um, you can go to one retailer and get an account and then come back and make it quicker, but that's just the one retailer. So there's no network effect driven models. So what the guys at Bolt are doing is saying, look, let's sign up all the shopping carts. Let's sign up all the retailers. And instantly you're going to be getting all the different consumers onto one sort of you know, checkout app, if you will, almost in a passive way. So like an aggregator, you know, like an aggregator, right? So an Amazon for the rest of the internet. Right. And so, but there, there really doesn't need to be 10 of them. You don't need 10 wallets. You need really one. And so I don't know if they're trying to be the, the, the number one wallet in the world, but certainly the number one checkout. But once you get the checkout, you've got everyone's data, you've got all the merchant's data, and you can kind of connect everybody up. And so the, the possibilities are endless at that point in terms of if I have the consumer's bank account data and I've got the merchant's bank account data, why do I need MasterCard and Visa in the middle of the transaction, right? So, you know, there's uh, there's big possibilities for companies like that, and there's a few others as well. But, um, you know, we just helped them raise, um, you know, nearly a billion dollars, and the last valuation was $11 billion. You know, it's just, they've only been around for a few years. So it's just like I see things like that. It's just inspiring to see what can become and, you know, why there hasn't been something like this to date, you know, still somewhat mind boggling. It's one of the most annoying things about the Internet is not being able to buy things very quickly. Right. Um, and Nigel's fixing that as well. So these are going to converge and, and probably will end up being partners is my guess. You know, so we have a couple of things happening, uh, you know, um, as, as, as emerging right now, you know, we're talking about the emergence of smart glasses, which, um, you know, many commentators in the space think that smart glasses by 2025 will be, you know, as common as the early iPhones were in terms of access. Um, you know, Project Aria from, from Meta um, working on this, uh, coming out of the Oculus team. Um, uh, Apple has obviously been working on their smart glasses uh, tech for a few years now. There's talk about a September release or September preview of, of, of smart glasses for Apple, um, you know, from, from the rumor mill. So um, smart glasses obviously will change payment form factor considerably because it has to be formless. You know, you're not going to have a point of sale unless it's negotiating with the glasses uh, in, in particular, but you're not going to have, you're not going to have to tap your phone anymore to do this because you're not going to take your glasses off to put on the POS terminal. Um, so we've got that happening. We've also got the world of the metaverse coming and we are going to need payments uh, in the metaverse, um, you know, and, and we'll be able to accept payments theoretically in the metaverse as well. You'll be able to build content and digital assets that you'll be able to sell. Um, but neither of those will be 
um, linked to those physical form factors like a plastic card that we had in the past. We need, you know, you're not going to put in your CVV and your expiry date, you know, in a, in a real-time transaction in a metaverse uh, environment, for example, or same with, um, you know, uh, with, um, you know, a smart glasses transaction in a retail outlet. So we, we, we are having to move away from this, which means, We've got to end up with wallets, cloud-based wallets for day-to-day banking. So, Nigel, um, you know, talk talk me through how Rails Bank is thinking about that sort of cloud-based architecture for payments, um, you know, contextually that are ubiquitous and formless. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, the if I I mean, just take a step back to the previous conversation, and you'll see where my answer is coming from. Uh, in China, all WeChat, Pay, and Alipay, and everything took off massively because there's no existing rails, and hence got, and also it's a massive country. And uh, there was no real legacy uh, because banking in China was very much for distributing the party funds as opposed to retail banking for individuals. So that that concept of getting to massive scale uh, using digital uh, and using wallet and QR codes and things uh, enabled uh, that 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 to happen. It's the same, I think, with glasses and in metaverse and and anywhere else because uh, there is no legacy in there. Uh, so the transaction can happen, the identities in there, etc. And uh, you could almost have the the glass seeing the QR code and your payments done rather than taking your glasses off Brett. and the uh, the, the uh, uh, then connecting those that infrastructure up to something like Wells Bank because uh, you have uh, whether it's a digital currency that then maps out uh, to, to fiat at some point uh, or it's a just a pure digital currency like Bitcoin or another there's no reason that can't be spent. Either on existing rails, new rails uh, as well. So the the concept of cloud storage of your physical fiat uh, and mapping that almost one to one between digital world and and where it's actually physically held and say backed by gold, uh, which some people may want, or you may want it just to be not backed by nothing like a bitcoin. So the 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 cloud becomes essentially the the storage and the switch between the different worlds. And uh, that's the something we, we see ourselves very much playing in there because we can hold fiat, we can hold actually digital uh, sort of digital representations as well. I think and, this is important for crypto as well, right? Because your wallet can sort of be agnostic. It can work in any setting. It can work, you can pay in crypto, you can pay in tokens, you can pay in USD, you can pay in uh, ECNY, you know, um, like the the Beijing Olympics next year, 2022, with, they're talking about having the mobile wallet powered by the E1, um, you know, CBDC. Mm-hmm. We've got stable coins, USDT, you know, and, and others sort of, coming up um so it, it it seems inevitable that we have to move to a more flexible wallet architecture you know what does well, that mean for the debit card you issue at a bank today or or for visa and mastercard as example it's, it's, it's why they're pretty much investing in open banking it's sort of a hook into that in, in some ways uh but the, but the, the true if if you roll this on a little bit 
and you see that uh, uh, the the where, where commerce started was two people exchanging bartering, as in two chickens uh, equals uh, a baby goat, and somebody figured that out uh, the exchange rate. So if you rolled us on that, uh, uh, the world of payments becomes back to the world of barter, and I may have these NFTs that represent. Uh, a certain uh, sort of memorabilia at, uh, say, uh, Barcelona Football Club. And you may have something that uh, represents uh, some artwork at the well, at the Victorian Albert Museum. Couldn't we exchange those in value because they're an exchangeable rate? Right. The digital assets, the provenance on those assets, that's a payment made. And so uh, that could be a, a future. Where, I mean, there's uh, there's lots of other questions about uh, how, whether that's going to be regulated or governed or anything. But we could come to the world of barter within that uh, sort of metaverse, within that sort of digital economy. And then the cloud does become the storage mechanism uh, for value. And you need on and off ramps as well if you want to go go back out to your old card. But there, there is potential. But, but I mean, I don't, I, I don't see how cards survive this. I mean, Steve, maybe you, you've got some thoughts on this as well. Just think about, you know, the the shifts that we saw during the pandemic for access to digital. That is just a glimpse of what the twenty first century digital services layer is going to be like. Access to education virtually, you know, access to telemedicine virtually, you know, um, your your ability to get your groceries delivered, the supply chain automation, all of that. It must lead us away from this sort of limited view of a single value store for a single bank based on a single currency that's expressed in a 16-digit pan. Surely that world can't survive the transition to the 21st century. What, Steve, you know, how, how long do you see this transition taking? I think it's going to take a while. I don't. I don't predict the death of Mastercard and Visa for for uh, any period of time, for that matter. I mean that. Everyone thinks those guys are these big, scary monopolies that are, you know, whatever. But but they're, they're only taking 15 basis points off the transaction. When you think about the, the broad, you know, interchange when you buy a, a T-shirt, it's, you know, close to 3% in some cases, right? Higher risk products, even higher. But Visa and Esco are only taking you know, 15 bips of all that. So, I mean, they're not really the problem. The problem is all the other stuff in between, the acquirers and processors and all the risk involved in, in all these transactions. And I think that's where you think about the data, you think about the risk, um, you know, yeah, sure, it's nice to think about a world where, you know, everyone's got all this store value all over the world or in the cloud, but, you know, what happens if you get hacked and it's gone? There's you know, infinite number of stories of people that lost all their Bitcoin or what have you. So I think um, there's, there's lots of issues around that. I think uh, the biggest issue, I think, is identity and authentication I mean, I say that. and fraud, you know, and, you know, if, if, if you were in a room of, you know, 50 people that you all knew each other and you're all using computers and everything was contained in that room, you know, everything would be perfect and seamless and instant. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you don't really know who's, you know, doing this out of, uh, you know, the middle of nowhere in the middle of night and, um, you know, going to steal your entire but, fortune. So it's pretty that- scary. Yeah, that, that is in itself a big reason that we need to reform the whole concept of 
payment devices and, and, and wallets. I had dinner with Dave Birch last night, who you both know, <laughs> um, you know, and we were talking about, um, uh, as we do, digital identity. But, um, you know, if you guys have seen the numbers coming out of Alipay, Alipay during Singles Day, 460,000 transactions per second with just 0. 0.0006 basis points of fraud. Um, card not present fraud in North America is 11.2 basis points of fraud. Right, um, so ten thousand times higher. So this comes back to biometrics and identity, Steve. You know, in, in, to your point, in respect to um, you know the security around wallets and the security around financial services, your mother's maiden name, your date of birth, your address, your social security number, your CVV code. These are no longer securable data points, right? So, uh, you know, where do you see? No, Nigel, where's the the digital identity part of this solution and, and you know, come into and what's Rail, Rails Bank approach to that? So, yeah, it's a, it's a uh, if you looked at the dollar and you were a product manager uh, to uh, and asked what would the dollar look like, design me a dollar today, uh, uh, you can be absolutely sure identity would be at, would be uh uh, part of the uh, design brief, so the uh, authenticity, provenance, and all those type of things. Uh, so we see that identity uh, is something that, and provenance, which is uh, why, why the sort of blockchain technologies are super interesting, uh, is intrinsic in value exchange, and the provability uh, of you, who I am. And the biometrics onto that that identity and the the fingerprinting of it is uh, is there because as you say the the CVC number and and, and something that's designed in a different world the security of different ones and there's there's um, there's improved micro improvements I'd say rather than macro improvements on top of the security of that it's still very very difficult to uh, to secure and the only thing I will say on it is uh, all criminals have perfect identities. Uh, regardless whether it's biometric or, or or passports, because when when we see we see fin crime all the time, and, and any any French institution that says they don't uh, is either naive or they're covering something up. So the uh, you, you'll find that the perfect identity for and it's only the stupid criminals that uh, get caught really on on identity uh, is is not really going to solve the the problem. Uh, it's uh, it's making sure that identity and behaviours are monitored. Right, I think that's where the, the uh, where Alipay and and sort of Tencent and Alibaba are extremely good is that's the data modelling perspective yeah. to be able to identify the yeah. the the bad actors. Right, yes. which which and, sort of raises the whole point of how regulation is going to have to evolve around fin crime and AML and things like that. You know, um, so. Um, so I know we've just got a few minutes left left to wrap up. Um, Steve, tell me about uh, 2022 and what your plans are for FT Partners for uh, the coming year. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Um, like I said before, we're we're hiring left and right. As the, we didn't really talk about what we do, but we help companies raise capital and and do M and A and IPOs. And you know, look, I I continue to think that's going to be a really strong market for us. And like I said before as well. Emerging markets are somewhere we're spending a ton of time, cross-border transactions, you know, 
Visa just buying Nigel's old company, Currency Cloud, uh, is another good example of that. So, you know, more and more MA transactions, I think, are going to happen. All that financing activity has to lead to IPOs and MA transactions. I think you're going to see in the next month or two a couple, you know, 50 billion plus, you know, legacy players make fintech acquisitions that'll surprise some people. Um, just a prediction. I have no idea for sure. Uh, and, um, you know, that'll be, uh, that'll be, that'll that's going to put pressure on some of the other banks and insurance companies to make big acquisitions. So I think you'll start to see some convergence. I think you're going to start to see a lot of fintech on fintech mergers, um, as well. Right. Um, you know, it was kind of surprising to me when we sold cabbage to Amex, um, great valuation, but like no other fintechs really showed up to the scene. It was Amex that won the deal. So, you know, and Goldman Sachs just bought uh, Green Sky Credit. So you're seeing more and more of this. And I think you're going to see uh, some bigger transactions in the relatively near future. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, talking about cross-border, did you guys just see Tavit uh, has uh, decided to, uh, I don't know, semi-retire from uh, Wise? That news just Tavit. came out yesterday. Yeah, Tavit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, so uh, he's taking a break. So, well, you know, good. Yeah, he's been at the helm for what? Um, yes, I know. Seven, I remember. Years, so. I remember Sounds like a wise move. Yeah, yeah. No, but uh, good guy. Whenever I remember meeting them both when there was a there were just a PowerPoint deck. Right, I remember that in a tribe when they were just uh, yeah. starting out too. So, so Nigel, um, where can people find out more about Rails Bank and your theories around embedded finance? Sure, go to railsbank.com. Uh, so that's fairly uh, quick and easy and, and the website uh, there's some click through there to talk to our team or just contact me directly on LinkedIn I'm the only Nigel Verdon on LinkedIn so it's quite easy to find and, uh, and um, doors that's, always that's, open that, that's a unique uh, privilege that you have there because it's like you know guys like myself Steve is I know got some other Steve McLaughlin's on LinkedIn I've got there's other there's tons of Brett Kings on LinkedIn so that's uh, that's a value. But anyway, thank you, uh, Steve McLaughlin, FT Partners, Nigel Verdon, Rails Bank. Thank you both for joining us on this uh, Christmas edition of uh, Breaking Banks. And I wish you both all the best for 2022. And thank you for your uh, your stellar support of the fintech industry more broadly and um, you know, bat battling it from the trenches every day. It is getting easier and more exciting, that's for sure. But uh, have, a, have a great uh, have a great weekend too. Yeah, great holiday, guys. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Nigel. Thank Thanks. you, guys. Thanks, That's Stephen. it for Breaking Banks this week. We will see you guys with more disruptive discussion next week and indeed next year. Um, stay well and uh, see you on the flip side. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.